is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I will not be greatly moved, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Before we begin our study of God's Word, it's our typical procedure to make sure that we are ready to take in the Word through the use of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do this through the privacy of our priesthood, a few moments of silent prayer so people can utilize 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we open with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather together as a body of believers to study your word because it is your word that is absolute truth. It is, gives us a knowledge of reality and how things are and how to solve problems and the problems that we face in our own lives so that we can, we can glorify you, so we can have stability, so that we can have the kind of joy that you have promised us. Now, Father, as we continue our study of your word tonight, we just pray that you'd help us to understand these things, that God the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher would help us to see how they apply to our lives, that we might grow by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyone watching the news over the last 24 hours has been, uh, probably heard the phrase, wake up call more than we ought, I assume, but uh, it is indeed a wake up call. The sad thing is that nobody knows what we're supposed to be waking up to. And as you listen to all the uh, commentators and all of the uh, talking heads speak about this tragic thing that's happened out there in Colorado, uh, we fail to provide the right solution. You hear everybody talking about the solution of uh, doing something to control the access of guns to kids. And, you know, they forget the fact that they walked into that place with some 30 different bombs and other paraphernalia that has nothing to do with gun control. And they talk about all of these other things. What can we do to spot trouble in kids? And some of this is good and valid, and some of it is just, you know, more throwing money at the problem to try to solve it. And it all misses the fundamental issue. That is, as a culture, we are fragmenting daily because we're getting further and further removed from the absolutes of the truth of the Word of God. And people are operating more and more upon human viewpoint concepts of uh, life and reality. And when you misdiagnose any problem in life, you're not going to be able to accurately resolve that problem or solve that problem. And all you're going to do is choose things that, while at a time may make it seem like the problem is less significant or less painful, it just further builds upon itself until you begin to see all of society and culture gradually erode 
and uh, and that's what we're seeing in all of these events. Is it's it's a it's a it's evidence of a systemic problem. It's not one thing or another. I was almost amazed at a rather knowledgeable, experienced, and respected news person asked the attorney general yesterday. Uh, if there was one thing you could do to change this, what would it be? What a silly question. Fortunately, the Attorney General answered it correctly. She said, there's no one thing you can do. I mean, it's a systemic problem. And ultimately, there are certain things that perhaps we might do. Uh, the solution doesn't, re- doesn't reside in government. The solution resides in, in dealing with the fundamental problem of man. And that is that we are fallen creatures, and because we live in a cosmic system that is dominated by Satan and his angels, and because when you start giving yourself over to sin and negative volition, rejecting the truth of God's word, and you begin to put emotion first, and you begin to put personal pleasure and personal feelings first, and uh, the ultimate consequence is going to be nothing more than internal uh fragmentation, and then as more and more people fragment internally, the whole culture begins to fragment. And that's what we see, is we just see this, and and nobody knows what the solution is, and yet we have the solution. And that solution is the Word of God. And I was just thinking this afternoon, as preparing for tonight, is that the sad thing is that so many believers think they have the solution because they're dealing with a superficial view of the Christian life and they're showing up for church on Sunday morning and that's about it. And they think that because they show up and hear a 20-minute sermonette and they sing a lot of songs and they go away with a rosy glow feeling like they've worshipped God, but they haven't learned anything. Their souls have not been edified or strengthened or nourished on the teaching of the Word of God and they're not building gradually line upon line, precept upon precept in their souls, the doctrinal foundations they need in order to face life, to solve problems, and to go forward, that when they face problems, they fall apart. And I don't care what kind of problems you've gone through. Um, If you have, like most people, serious problems in your life, you've had tests in your life, I think uh, everybody has. You just don't necessarily wear it on your shirt sleeve so that everybody can see what you've gone through. If anybody's gone through any significant testing in life, you realize that what gets you through that testing is not the songs that you sang. It's not the wonderful people you know at church. It's not the people who call you up and encourage you, although all of those things are nice and fine and there's nothing wrong with them. What gets you through it is when the lights go out at night and there's nobody there and there's no songs being sung and there's nobody putting their arm around you. All that's left is the Word of God that's in your soul. And when the Word of God is more important to you than anything else in life, when the Word of God is more real to you than any experience, any tragedy, any rejection, any pain, that's when you know that you're advancing spiritually. That's the essence of what it means to trust the Lord, to put Him first, to be able to realize that God's Word is more real to us and more powerful and on the basis of the promises of God, we can overcome and surmount any difficulty, any pain in life, and that that's why God has given us His precious and magnificent promises, is that so we can handle any kind of situation in life. Now, in the last few weeks, as we've been studying in James chapter 2, 
we've, we've studied the royal law, and it just struck me this afternoon as I was listening to the analysis of these, these boys and their problems and their background and these kids that get involved in these, these groups, how they're, they feel on the outside looking in in a high school culture. And the problem was what we addressed a couple of weeks ago, and that's rejection. And rejection is a powerful thing, whether it's real or whether it's imagined. And most of us can probably relate back to high school when there was some real rejection and there was a lot of imagined rejection. And how you respond to that is very important. And you parents ought to be paying attention. I think that there's nothing more important in some ways, more immediately applicable in many ways than what we are teaching right now in this James series on how to handle problems and getting a grasp of these problem-solving uh, these spiritual skills, these stress busters that God has provided for us so that we can uh, learn them. And if you, you parents have kids, you need to be drilling these things into your kids and using every opportunity that comes along, every bump in the road as a, mean, as a teaching opportunity and a learning situation to focus on how to resolve problems through utilization of these uh, problem-solving skills so that you can teach them how to use the faith rest drill and teach them what it means to have doctrinal orientation and what it means to have grace orientation and all of these other problem-solving devices that we're studying. Because if you drill that into them when they're young, then that will start to become their reflex activity as they become older, that instead of reacting emotionally, internalizing rejection in terms of anger, bitterness and jealousy and hostility that the, instead of that they have a defense in their soul that's based upon the word of God now we have come down to a study in James 2.8 where we're in the midst of, of studying James exposition of what it means to be an applier of the word I think it's very important for us at this point to step back just a little bit so that we do not lose the overall thrust of what's taking place in this epistle. Back in 118, James says, In the exercise of his will, he, that is God the Father, brought us forth by the word of truth. And this reminds us of the principle in Romans, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And this is a reference to the gospel. The word of truth here is a reference to the gospel that at some point in life somebody communicated the gospel to you that if you want to have eternal life then that is based upon Jesus Christ's efficacious work on the cross where he died for, as a substitute for our sins. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died as a substitute for us. And somebody explained the gospel to you and that went in to you, and the, God the Holy Spirit act, acted as a substitute for your human spirit at that point, and He made the gospel understandable, so that you realize that as a sinner, that you had, we were separated from God, and that you, there was an eternal penalty of spiritual death. And as you understood the gospel, then you had to exercise your your volition either positively or negatively, to accept the gospel as a free gift or negatively to reject it. Unfortunately, too many people have rejected it today uh, and are, if, 
if they haven't rejected the gospel, they've rejected grace in terms of the spiritual life, and they're trying to gain the favor of God through ritual, through various activities and good deeds and everything else. But Scripture says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not because of faith. It's very specific in the Greek. If it was because of faith, then faith would have some merit in and of itself. But it is through faith that we are saved. It is not because of faith, but you are saved through faith and then not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So as the gospel became understandable, you responded positively. And once you understood it, it became in the soul, mentality of the soul, gnosis. Gnosis is academic knowledge. Once it was understood, you had to respond again positively or negatively. And at that point, if you responded positively, God the Father created in you, or God the Holy Spirit created in you at that instant, a human spirit. The human spirit is that immaterial part of man that allows him to have a relationship with God. And he created and imparted to you a human spirit, and simultaneously with that, he imputed to that human spirit eternal life. So at that point, you became a new creature in Christ. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. That's what James is referring to in the exercise of his will. It's his will ultimately, not our will. It is through faith, through is, is intermediate agency. It is not ultimate agency. We exercise our faith, but it is God who creates the human spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, creates the human spirit. And it is God who regenerates us. We do not regenerate ourselves. There is no uh, efficacy in our faith. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who takes that faith and makes it efficacious for our salvation. So we are saved through faith. James tells his readers, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. It's very clear from this passage that we are talking about believers. James is writing to believers. He's writing to those who are saved, those who are regenerate, those who have some doctrine in their background even. And he is going to be writing to explain to them the issues of the spiritual life, primarily how to handle testing and adversity in the spiritual life. Scripture says there is no testing take, come upon you, that it, there is no temptation come upon you, such as a common man, but God is faithful and will, with the testing, make a way to escape that you may be able to endure it. And that is the theme of James, is how to endure, how to persist in the midst of testing, how to handle trials. What are the spiritual skills that God has given us for handling problems so that we can avoid uh, converting that outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. And James is going to organize his thoughts around three principles. These are given in verse 19 of chapter 1. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's a three-point sermon. The idea of being quick to hear is further explained starting in verse 21 of chapter 1, down through 2, verse 26, down through chapter 2, verse 26. And it's important to understand this because we're getting ready, we're on the verge of coming to one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. It's very difficult to understand. And we have to understand the context. James starts off and he says we must be quick to hear. Then in verse 21, he starts to explain the mechanics of how you listen to the Word of God. 
It starts off with a participle. We saw it was a participle of attendant circumstance, which means it states the prerequisites to the command. The command is the verb receive. We receive in humility the word implanted. But it begins with the prerequisite of putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And we saw that this is basically the principle of 1 John 1, 9, which is confession of sin and restoration to fellowship. And we're going to discuss that in more detail in the, in the main body of the message this evening. So we'll come back to that. Therefore, having put aside as a prerequisite all filthiness and all wickedness in which, ex, which, in which excess is, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Now, stop right there. James uses this phrase, save your souls, and immediately, if you're brought up in American cult, Christian evangelical culture, you want to interpret the word save there as meaning saved from eternity in the lake of fire. You immediately think of the come on in evangelism, are you saved, brother? And by that you mean are you going to end up in heaven instead of hell? Now, the Scripture uses the word sozo, the Greek word translated saved, in three different senses in relation to the spiritual life. Phase number one, phase one relates to salvation from the penalty of sin. More technically, we call this justification, salvation, regeneration. It happens in a moment in time, an instant in time. It's not a process. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, at that instant, God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates you, and you're a new creature in Christ. Then you enter into phase two. Phase two says that you are saved from the power of sin. We saw in 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, almost an identical structure to what we find in James 1, 21. That is, first of all, putting aside the sin that is in our life, and then taking in the Word. And there it is, desire the Word, the milk of the Word, which is uh, able to nourish you. So you're saved from the power of sin. This is the process of the spiritual growth where we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the Scripture says. And then phase three, we talk about being saved from the presence of sin. Now, the Bible uses the word sozo in each of these senses, so whenever you see it in Scripture, you always have to ask, what is the context? Don't just immediately jump to think that this means eternal salvation from the lake of fire. Because we've already said these are believers. They are born again. They do not need to be saved again in that sense. But they need to be saved in phase two sense. They need to be saved from the power of sin. And there are only two power options in the spiritual life. Power option number one is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Filling of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, we're commanded to be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. But what does He fill us with? That is not a dative of content. There's no such thing in Ephesians 5.18. It is a dative of means. We are filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. What are we filled with? Colossians 3.16, we are filled with the Word of Christ. This is the second power option between God the Holy Spirit working in tandem with the Word of Christ, that is Bible doctrine. We have the ability to overcome any situation in life. That's what James is talking about. We have to rebound first, and in humility we receive the word implanted, which is able to save the souls. And this is an idiom for saving the life. Now let's go back to a chart that we haven't seen for a while, which describes the overall 
blueprint of the spiritual life. Starts at salvation here at the cross. Then we go through tests of doctrine in life. That's the uh, most uh, correct meaning of tests of faith. Faith means not only the act of believing, but also what is believed. And so in James 1.3, we encounter various tests of faith. They test the content of doctrine in our souls, whether we're going to apply it or not. The upper flow chart here, where we go from tests of doctrine to divine good, life in terms of the abundant life. Remember, Jesus said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but I came to give life and to give life abundantly. Two things. They're not synonyms there. He's talking, number one, about eternal life, and number two, about the quality of that spiritual life that we have if we're growing and maturing. And this produces evidence, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, that the will of God is good and profitable. This produces steadfast endurance, and we mature to the adult spiritual life under the dynamics of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So this is the upper path. The result of that is when we die in phase three, and we're face to face with the Lord, and then we end up at the judgment seat of Christ when He returns at the rapture. Those who have lived in this top sphere of operation are going to gain rewards and inheritance in heaven. The issue of the judgment seat of Christ is not destiny, it is rewards and inheritance. If you fail the test of doctrine, you try to solve them on the basis of human viewpoint or the sin nature of human good, that results in temporal death. Up here is life. I want to emphasize this. The top arena here is called life in the Scriptures. The bottom arena is carnality. It is temporal death in the Scriptures. If you stay here long enough, you're going to end up in the sin unto death. Now, the reason I say that is because this phrase that's translated save your souls in James 1.21 is basically an idiom for saving the life. And this is a theme you find all through the Proverbs that if you follow the path of righteousness, you'll have life. But there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And that's what that's talking about, is that the path of righteousness and obedience to God brings us life. The path of sin, nature, control brings us death. Even though we're alive, it is destructive to our souls and destructive to our life. And what James is saying is if you're operating on on the basis of Bible doctrine and the filling of the Holy Spirit, then you will not only have life, but you will have abundant life. And then comes the command in verse 22, but become, and it's not prove, scratch that out, there's no word for prove in the original Greek, it's the verb genomai, which means to become something you weren't before, but prove or become doers. And there we find the Greek word poieo, very important word to understand in this whole epistle. See if I can get hearing and doing. But doing is a bad way of thinking about it because it gets people thinking in terms of religiosity and church activities. It's application. James is saying become appliers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now this takes us back to a very fundamental concept that we've looked at already and that is how the believer learns doctrine. Remember, the issue is not your academic IQ. The issue is not how much schooling you've had. The issue is not native ability. The issue is a spiritual life because God has provided a system for learning the Word of God 
that it's the same for every single believer. And we get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The pastor teacher communicates doctrine. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 through 14. You exercise positive volition and learn it and you understand it. It becomes gnosis doctrine, which is academic knowledge. Now, this is the problem, is that too many believers confuse academic knowledge with and gnosis with epinosis, and they think that because they know so much about the Scriptures that they have matured spiritually. But once you understand it, then you have to exercise your volition again and believe it. And then God the Holy Spirit metabolizes it as epinosis doctrine, which is a pliable doctrine. At this point, it's like after you have eaten and once you've swallowed your food, automatic reflexes take over and voluntary muscles take over, and the food is broken down and distributed as as sugar and other forms of chemicals into the bloodstream to nourish and feed the cell structure where it becomes applicable, applicational. But we still have to exercise volition again, and that is to apply it. Epinosis doctrine is not automatically applied. So this is what James is saying. Become appliers of the word and not merely hearers, that is, those with a lot of academic knowledge, who delude themselves. Now, that's the main idea. And then we have seen, just by way of brief summary, that that James develops this idea that looking at the perfect law of liberty in verse 25, which is we saw perfect means complete, and there is an allusion to the completed canon of Scripture, which at the time that James wrote wasn't complete yet. In the history of the canonicity and understanding the New Testament, James is probably the first epistle written in the New Testament, And so it's written before any of the others. But James knows that once the New Testament canon is complete, that everything will be given the believer for his life. And that this is the course of blessing, verse 25. And then we see various principles that he brings out in relationship to what application looks like. It's taking care of the orphans and the widows in the midst of their suffering and adversity. It's keeping yourself unstained by the world system. That's also reiterated by Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Not by your emotions, not by your feeling, but through cognition of doctrine. And then believing it, the Holy Spirit makes it epinosis doctrine where it's applicational. And then he gives a specific case, a situation where the rich man comes to visit and he's treated with uh, great honor, and he's not a believer. and he's, In fact, he persecutes the church and blasphemes the Lord. And in contrast to him, they don't exercise unconditional love in relation to the poor beggar who comes in, and they make him sit in the back of the room and treat him disrespectfully. The result of this is that James draws the principle in verse 8 related to the royal law. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They had not loved the poor man as themselves. They were treating him with favoritism. Now, that's the issue. We start here. The Greek construction of verse 8 should read, as we saw last time, if, on the one hand, you are fulfilling the royal law, and it's a first-class condition. First-class condition means if, and we are going to assume the reality of the condition in the protasis. That's the first part of the conditional clause. If, and we assume it to be true, that you are fulfilling the law according to the Scriptures, you 
shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, you're doing well. And here he uses our word again, poieo. This is what it looks like in the Greek. P-O-I-E-O. And it means to do, to perform, to work. And we're using it to mean to apply. That's the context. You are applying well if you utilize this royal law, which we saw as the eighth problem-solving device, which we call impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind. It's impersonal in the sense that you don't need to know who this person is. Some stranger walks in the back, you don't know him from Adam, but you treat him with respect and honor and just as you would want to be treated. And so we call that impersonal love. And then verse 9, where we're starting tonight. This is the contrast. But if, on the other hand... You show partiality. So there's a contrast. You're either in one status or the other. Either you are applying the word or you're not. Over here, if you're disobeying the mandate to love your neighbor as yourself, you are committing sin. Let's see how this begins. It starts off with the particle ada, which looks like this in the, in the Greek. E-I is your uh, conditional particle. D-E is your conjunction. Contrast. This is in contrast. Notice how James, just like we've seen with Paul in Galatians on Sunday morning, is contrasting two conditions. Either you're obedient or you're disobedient. Either you're walking by the Spirit or you're walking by law. Either you're operating in grace or you're operating in law. Either you're operating in the flesh or you're operating on the power of the Spirit. There's no in-between. So here the contrast is either you're applying the word in the midst of a situation with another person, in the midst of a rejection scenario, which is what this is. The rich were pressing them, dragging them into court. It was a clear case of hostility because of their stand for the gospel. And James says, if you show partiality towards them, you are committing sin. Now, showing favoritism to somebody is not usually on our top ten list of sins. We would put murder, adultery, uh, other things of that nature, extreme overt sins, heinous sins, mass murder, things like that, genocide. Those would make our top ten list of sins, not favoritism. But notice how James brings our attention here. If you show favoritism, and that's the Greek word, prosopolemptio, looks like this, P-R-O-S-O-P-O-L. E-M-P-T-E-O. Write that out in English so you can see it a little more clearly. And it has to do with looking on the face. If you break it down etymologically, it means to look on somebody's face literally. And that means to uh, show them favoritism, to show partiality. So if we translate it, if, and we assume you will... Do this, you show favoritism, you are indeed committing sin. This is the consequence of this condition. You commit a sin, and what's the consequence? And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, the word for convicted is a not a verb like it appears in the English. It's a present passive participle of the verb elenko, which looks like this in the Greek. E-L-E, 
And this gamma, with, when you have a hard letter after it, is always pronounced like an N, so we'll just transliterate it with an N. C-H-O. Alenco. It's a present passive participle. What we see in this kind of construction when you have a main verb, which is ergozomai, translated committing sin. And in the Greek, the word order is completely different from the way it is in the English. Sin can come before comes the direct object comes before the verb so you have the main verb ergozomai here followed immediately by an anarthrous participle that means there's no definite article the in front of this participle here which is translated elenko which is trans, which is elenko translated convict now this is important you know, every now and then I try to pull little jewels out of the greek for you so you know all this is worth something the anarthrous participle is adverbial and it further defines the main verb. When it's set up in this kind of syntactical relationship, it's an adverbial participle of result. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and with the result that you are convicted by the law as transgressors. The law is stated here is the absolute standard for judging man. Now, it's not the Mosaic law per se. James is not going back and saying Christians are to be under the law. He's not saying that. He is talking, remember, these are Jewish believers. And they respect the Mosaic law just as we do, not as a means of spiritual life, not as a means of salvation, but as the expression of God's will. And they know that all but one of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament. The one that's not reiterated is the sabbatical principle. All of the other principles in the Mosaic Law are reiterated and are mandatory upon believers in the church age. So what James is telling them is that if you show partiality, which in in many ways is considered by some people to be just a minor offense, you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. And the word transgressor here means someone who has violated the law. And for a Jew, this was a terrible thing to be convicted of. If you were a lawbreaker, this was a terrible thing and that you could never overcome that. That's the, one of the problems in Judaism in their works scenario. So James says if you are just commit this, this sin of favoritism... You have transgressed God's law. Now, we have to go back to the character of God. Remember, God is absolute righteousness. He is perfect justice. Both of these words derive from the Greek word, dikaiosune. Which looks like this, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. Which can refer to either righteousness or justice. It's the same thing in the Hebrew. You have the one word, sedek, which can refer to either righteousness or justice. Righteousness is the standard of God's character. This is His absolute standard. See, one of the problems in our culture today is we've gotten away from the very notion of absolutes. That you can't have any kind of firm, integrated society. You can't have integrity in society if you don't have absolutes. The perfect righteousness of God establishes the standard, and the justice of God is the application of that standard towards God's creatures. So therefore we say what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. 
Now, if you engage in favoritism, you have violated the righteous standard of God so that you have been rejected. The justice of God, therefore, condemns. You are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Now, in verse 10, James is going to come back and he's going to explain this principle. But before we get there, let's remind ourselves of something. First of all, are we talking about believers or unbelievers? We're talking about believers. So we're not talking about loss of salvation. We're talking about the fact that these are believers and they are engaged in behavior that doesn't measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. It falls short of the standard of God. Now, how much righteousness, how much sin does it take to violate the righteousness of God? Let's go back and look at something because I just want to build this case very, very slowly And very carefully, because when we get down into verse 14 and following and have to answer the question of the relationship of faith and works, if I don't establish these things first, you're going to be lost. And you're not going to understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. At the moment of salvation, we are entered into union with Christ through the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We become new creatures in Christ. This is our eternal relationship which can never be lost. But we have a temporal relationship. At the moment of salvation, we're also filled with the Holy Spirit. But as soon as we sin, any sin, what we see from this passage, any sin violates the standard of God. So our fellowship with God is lost because God is absolute righteousness and His absolute righteousness can have fellowship, cannot have fellowship with any creature that doesn't meet His standard. So we're out of fellowship. The old King James called it carnality. It's fleshly. 1 Corinthians 3, it's sarkikos is the verb. We've grieved the Holy Spirit and quenched the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 31st, that's 5, 19. And we are walking in darkness, according to 1 John 1, 6. We're in carnality. Now, the point I want to make is that there are some people who think that as long as their underlying attitude is that they want to obey God, as long as that's in place, then if they commit a little sin here or, or an unknown sin there, then they're still in fellowship. It's only when they commit a willful sin of a certain magnitude, and they can't define what that magnitude is, it's only then that you start becoming carnal. And becoming carnal is a process. And they define carnality not as being under the control of the sin nature, but they define it as being an excessive sin, what we would call backsliding or reversionism because we've reversed our course so much. But the problem here is that they have failed to take into account how much sin does it take to violate the standard of God. Does the fact that you don't know it's a sin change the fact that it violates His standard? Of course not. And darkness cannot have any fellowship with light, period. That's what the Scripture says. So, And then the second problem is that carnality, carnal, translates... A Greek word, the adjective from sark, sarkikos, S-A-R-X, which refers to the flesh as a description of the sin nature. And why we call it carnality is because at that point, rather than being influenced and, and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5 is the terminology there, we are now walking by means of the sin nature. This is the, now the primary influence in the life. And so we can't please God at all because we are in darkness. And so these are absolutes. 
Carnality is not extreme sinfulness, it is any sinfulness. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, verse 10 says, he has become guilty of all. And that is a very good translation, and it gets the point across in verse 10 that it doesn't take a lot. The law is viewed as a unity. Each mandate in the law comes from God. So if you break one, you break them all. Verse 11, he's going to use two examples from the Mosaic Law, two extreme examples, two of the more overt sins. For he who said, that is, he is God, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See, sometimes I think people get these funny notions that they get to heaven somehow by their works, that somehow they're going to impress God by what they do. And I like the illustration of a traffic ticket. Let's say you have an unblemished record. I wouldn't know what that is, but I know there are some people that are that way. Somebody called me last week and they called me, one of the people on our tapes, and they said, uh, Robbie, if I'm speeding, is that a sin? Am I out of fellowship? If I'm listening to your tape and I go ten miles over the speed limit, am I out of fellowship? And I said, I'm not going to touch that with a ten-foot pole. But let's say you have, a, have an unblemished record. And you show up before the judge now because you have received a ticket for doing 10 miles over the speed limit. And you have been driving for 40 or 50 years, so you have a long unblemished record. And you tell the judge, well, judge, look at my record for 40 years. I've never, never violated a traffic law and never received a citation. So you ought to weigh this one infraction against 40 years of obedience. See, that's how people tend to treat salvation. They, they, they think that God's going to weigh their good deeds over against their, their bad deeds. But see, the issue isn't what you did good. The issue is the violation of God's absolute standard. And see, in, any judge in the land is going to say, it doesn't matter how many years you obeyed the law. The issue is on this particular day, this particular time, you are violating the speed law, and so you're guilty and you're fine. See, if you are a breaker of the law in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing and you're out of fellowship. Now, then we come to a very interesting verse in verse 12, which expresses the consequences of that, of that sin. It's a conclusion. It reads funny in the, in the English where it says, so speak and so act. There's an emphasis going on here. There's two verbs and there is a uh, <coughs> a particle of inference. In the Greek, it looks like this. It's hutos. And it comes before each verb. The first verb is laleo, to speak. And the second verb is act, which is our verb poieo. I've mentioned that once or twice already. It means to apply doctrine. It's the theme of this whole section. Notice how... James shows great literary skill in the way he continually weaves these words in and out of his narrative to make sure you understand what the point is. It says, so speak and so act. 
Now, the way it's translated so is, is funny in English. It's a conclusion. Thus, because of what we have said, that if you violate the law in one minor point, you violated the whole law. Therefore, because that's true, speak a certain way and act or apply doctrine a certain way. He repeats for emphasis the hutos twice to make sure we get the point. Therefore, speak and therefore act or do or apply as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now notice how he is very particular in referring to the law here in this verse as the law of liberty and not the Mosaic law. Because he has used the Mosaic law in verses 10 and 11 for illustrative purposes. Because that's a point of common ground that we all have and that is respect for the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law is the revelation of God and the revelation of His absolute standard to Israel, but it's no longer related to the church age. Now, that always surprises a few people. God created Adam and Eve, and after uh, Cain slew his brother Abel, murder was a sin all the way through the flood, all the way up to the Tower of Babel, the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way up to the call of Moses, and then on Mount Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments. But murder was wrong from the beginning. didn't become wrong Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the giving of the Mosaic Law, which is the constitution for the, for the nation Israel, and it defines their spiritual life and their civil life in, as a theocracy, and it's not for the church age. Now, as I said earlier, nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the church age, and are still in effect because they have been reiterated for us. But we see that he refers to this now as the law of liberty, and you have to go back to what he said in verse 25 of chapter 1. There we read, but one who looks intently. And we saw there that the word in the Greek there means to look diligently, to take pains with something, to... mentally as you evaluate something. This isn't just having a superficial quiet time in the morning where you read your uh, your 10 verses or 20 verses and have a quick prayer and off you go for the day. This is detailed studying of the perfect law which he calls the law of liberty. Why is it the law of liberty? Because the completed canon of scripture tells us how we can be free from the sin nature. And we discussed the entire doctrine of liberty, both in that context and in the context of our study of Galatians 5 within the last couple of months, that the liberty for the believer is not that you're free to sin, but it's that you're free not to sin. Because the, the power of the sin nature has been broken at the cross by our baptism in Jesus Christ, that the old man is crucified with Christ, that's retroactive positional truth, and so we are free from the power of the sin nature and we don't have to sin. Until the point of salvation, you always had to sin because there was no alternative. Whatever you did flowed from the sin nature. It's only at salvation when you are given a new spiritual life with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit that you have the power not to sin. 
And so the mandates, the absolutes that are given, summarized in all of the imperatives in the New Testament, express God's will and plan for the church age believer in the spiritual life of the church age. And so the command here is to speak and to act in conformity with those mandates and those principles. Now it's interesting that in the Greek, these two imperatives are present active imperatives. Now I keep making a point of this because James stylistically shifts back and forth between aorist imperatives and present imperatives. Now the aorist imperatives give specifics, usually stresses urgency to apply that principle. Whereas the present imperative emphasizes a characteristic that these are mandates that express general principles for the spiritual life, specifically for habits or behavior patterns that should characterize your life. You need to make this a habit to speak and act a certain way. This is to characterize your life. This is to be a part of your character. And the idea is a customary present that you should continue this throughout your life, train yourself to make this a habit pattern. Speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And here we find the verb uh, krino. K-R-I-N-O. We are to be judged. It's a present passive infinitive. It's an infinitive of of uh, purpose, that we are going to be judged by the law of liberty. It means to, crino means to decide a question of legal right or wrong and thus determine the innocence or guilt of the accused and assign appropriate punishment and retribution. Now, you have to ask three important questions here, really three parts to one question. What judgment is this? What does James mean when he says that we are going to be judged by the law of liberty? Well, theologians offer three options. Option number one, which almost everybody goes to as some sort of a knee-jerk reaction, is the great white throne judgment, which is covered in uh, Revelation chapter 20. Now, I have a problem with that. And the problem that I have with that is that John 3.18 says that the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is not judged. Same verb. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that tells us that the only issue in salvation is faith alone in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the basis for condemnation is he has not believed. The basis for condemnation is not because he has committed X, Y, or Z sin. The basis for condemnation is not because he has sinned. The basis for condemnation in John 3.18 is because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the only people that are showing up at the great white throne judgment are going to be unbelievers. Now let's stop a minute and evaluate what takes place at the great white throne judgment. The issue there is not sin. Why is it not sin? 
Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty. He was judged for our transgressions. He paid the penalty in full to telestai. He paid the penalty in full at the cross. It means it can't be paid again. So every single sin in human history was paid for at the cross. So sin is no longer an issue as far as a person's relationship with God is concerned. But you see, God is perfect righteousness. Here's ground zero. And man is born way down here, minus R, with the imputation of Adam's original sin, personal sin, and a sin nature. All that happens by the payment of sin is you're brought up here to maybe a neutral position at best. But what gets us into heaven is the possession of perfect righteousness. So two things have to happen, and they do happen in salvation. We studied it in regeneration. It's the washing of the Holy Spirit. That applies to cleansing, the application to us of cleansing, and it also is the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and then the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be, that, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. See, this is the issue. So at the great white throne judgment, you might want to turn there with me. I want to go over this in a couple other passages. Revelation 20, 12, and 13 describes it. John, in his vision, says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. These are the books of works. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the book according to their sins. No, that's not what it says, is it? It says according to their deeds. So what happens is God's got this large book and He's going to pull out all those good deeds that these unbelievers have have done. And He's going to add them all up and He's going to conclude, oops, it's still not perfect righteousness. And their condemnation is not for their sins because Jesus was judged for the sins on the cross. Their condemnation is because a righteous God cannot have fellowship with unrighteous man. And so because they lack the perfect righteousness of Christ, they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. They have rejected the divine solution. And they have tried to do what Adam and Eve did in the garden, and that is to solve their problem on their own works. After Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked, they were vulnerable. God came to walk in the garden. God, and they, what, what happened? They were afraid, and they ran and hid, and they, they took fig leaves, and they sewed them together in order to try to solve the problem of their nakedness. And that's what good deeds are. They might be good, they might be helpful in terms of human experience, but when it comes to a relationship with God, God says all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so they don't add up to perfect righteousness, and so there's condemnation. This same thought is reiterated in 1 Peter 1.17, where Peter says, And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. So, the issue is judgment at the great white throne judgment is, which is our first option, is Unbelievers, the issue there is where Christ already paid the penalty. The second solution is that this is the Bema seat. Bema was the name of the bench where the local judge in a Greek city sat. The Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. Is this the judgment seat of Christ? No, there are some good men who take this, that this is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And that we will be evaluated 
And, and of course, believers will be evaluated according to their uh, works and their growth and everything in relationship to uh, for rewards and inheritance. But the problem I have here is the word krino or krinomai, crisis, is not found in any of the passages that discuss the judgment seat of Christ. There you have a different Greek word, and the verb is dokimadzo. D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O, which means to test for approval. And for those of you who have been hanging with me through this study, you know that this is uh, one of James' words that he uses back in verse 2 of chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And there in trials and testing... Um, knowing that the testing of your faith, that's dokimion, the noun form, which means evaluation. So the judgment seat of Christ is our evaluation of what we've done in the spiritual life and our walk on earth. So we have one option is that judgment relates to eternal condemnation and the great white throne judgment and chrysis and crino are both used in relation to that. Second object is Op, uh, option is the Bema Seed, but Christus and Crino are not used of the judgment seat of Christ. And the third option, therefore, must relate to some sort of judgment that's taking place in time. Now, we ought to scratch our heads and say, well, is there a time when the believer is ever to judge himself or to be judged in time? And we find this same word group, Christus and Crinomai, in 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32. There the context is talking about the Lord's table. And in relation to coming to the Lord's table, there is a mandate for self-judgment and self-evaluation. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. And this relates to the basic principle of confession of sin. 1 John 1.9 If we confess, and confess does not mean to feel sorry for your sins, it doesn't mean to try to impress God with how sincere you are because God in His omniscience knows you're going to do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next. It is simply to acknowledge or to admit guilt. Then the way you come to that is to look at how the word confess is used in the Psalms, the so-called penitential or confessional Psalms. And over and over again you have parallelism in the Psalms and poetry in Hebrew is not a rhyming of words, it's a rhyming of ideas, so that one stanza reflects the meaning of the next stanza, and you compare them for, for meaning and understanding. When you have the word confess in one line, its synonym is used in the next line, which would be either the word for admit or the word for acknowledge. And that removes any emotional connotation from the word confess, as well as any religious notion, a ritualistic notion. It is to admit or acknowledge sin to God the Father, because the sin was judged at the cross. But the issue now is whether or not you need to have a little discipline. For whom the Lord loveth, He chastens and scourges alive every son He receives with a whip, according to Hebrews chapter 12. The issue now is to bring us back into line so that we can grow and advance to spiritual maturity. So we are mandated here to speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. If you get out of fellowship and you are out here in the 
in the bottom circle, in out of the bottom circle here, in carnality, then you are in the place of divine discipline and divine correction in order to get your attention to get back into fellowship with God. And that begins with confession. Now, confession only gets you back here. It doesn't make you grow. Growth comes from applying the Word of God. And the sad thing is, and it's hard for us as baby believers because we're constantly bouncing in and out, in and out, but gradually as we grow and as we mature, we spend a little more time in the bottom circle, a little more time in the bottom circle, and we produce a little more divine good and production of the Holy Spirit and growth occurs. Now, 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. See, that's the nuance of judging here. It's not the same judgment Christ received for the sin on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, He died a spiritual substitutionary death. Why? The penalty for sin is spiritual death. When God told Adam and Eve on the moment they ate of that fruit, they would die. They didn't die physically, they died spiritually. But that dominoed all kinds of collateral damage throughout all of the natural realm and throughout their lives. And just one of the consequences is physical death. But it has many other consequences from that one negative decision that they made. Now, spiritual death is the penalty for sin, so the penalty that has to be paid has to be paid in kind on the cross, which is spiritual death. Between 12 noon and 3 p.m., when darkness covered the earth, God the Father poured out on Jesus Christ all the sins of the world. At 3 p.m., it was over with. Then Jesus said, to telestai, which is a perfect active indicative of the verb teleo, T-E-L-E-O, which we find in the papyri written at the bottom of a bill, paid in full. It's all accomplished. But Jesus is still alive physically. He doesn't die physically until after He says to Telestai, and then He dies of His own volition, and He gave up the Spirit. So, the spiritual death of Christ on the cross, He was judged... For our iniquities, that spiritual death judgment. When we go out and we commit sin, murder, adultery, favoritism, lying, gossip, maligning, envy, jealousy, any sin, we are going to come into the law of divine discipline and uh, the law of reaping and sowing whatsoever a man reaps, this he will also sow, and that's divine discipline. That's not the same category as the judgment that Christ faced on the cross for our sins. So even though the same word, crino, is used to describe both, it refers to different penalties, different consequences. The first is the eternal spiritual death. The second relates to bringing us back into obedience. It is divine discipline in order to get us back to a position of trusting the Lord. Now verse 13 reads, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown No mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the conclusion, but most Bibles break the paragraph here at the end of verse 13. I break it at the beginning of 13. 13 is going to set up because of the idea of mercy. See, they weren't very, didn't show mercy to the poor man in terms of the application of the law of unconditional love. They were harsh toward him. And so they're going to reap a double punishment because of their merciless attitude. But it also relates to...
to the application illustration that will be used in verse 15 through 17. So verse 13 should really be the beginning of the next uh, section, the next paragraph, setting up the discussion and the reason for the question of verse 14. And so we will begin there next Wednesday night and answer the question, or begin to answer the question, what is the relationship of works to faith? And is it necessary for a man to have works in order to show that he has faith? And is this passage even talking about salvation? Which salvation is it? Phase one, justification. Phase two, sanctification. Or phase three, glorification. We'll find out next Wednesday night. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word tonight, for its clarity, its perspicacity in our lives, to help us to understand the importance of our relationship with You in dealing with the sin in our lives, and that Your perfect solution solved all those problems at the cross. And now we need to live our lives on the basis of that, that we may grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.